to Bonnets at Dawn, the podcast that pitches Jane Austen against all the Brontes, except for the month of May. We're not talking about any of those people. We're talking about Louisa May Alcott. I am your host, Hannah Chapman, Team Austen and Alcott. And, oh, yeah. And I am your host, Lauren Burke, Team Bronte and Alcott for the moment, you know, for the month of May. A couple more weeks, people, and then it's back to the battlefield. Yeah, exactly. You missing your girl, Jane? Missing my girl, Jane. I've got a yeah. little Jane reference this week. Don't you worry. I'm slipping around. Oh, good. Good, good, good. Um, yeah, I think there'll be a little Jane talk this episode. There'll be a little Bronte talk this episode. So we're still, All your favorites. We're still working them in. Getting the band yeah. back together. <laughs> exactly. They're all related. So as you guys know, we are in the middle of our Eight Cousins recap. So this week, we are going to talk about chapters 9 through 16. But first, we are going to dive back into our interview with writer and professor Anne Boyd Rue. Uh, she is our Louisa May Alcott expert this month. And um, I'm so glad she got to join us. She's going to come back on the show later on this summer, early fall, to discuss her two Louisa books that are coming out. One is the uh, Penguin Classic Edition of Little Women that she edited. And the other is her nonfiction book, Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy, The Story of Little Women and Why It Still Matters. Now today, Anne and I are going to just chat a little bit about Louisa's work history. And, um, you know, maybe a familiar name comes up. (coughs) Charlotte Brown. I feel like with Alcott, we have such a good, I feel like I have such a good sense of who she is. I Maybe this is just compared to the Bronte sisters who like, you know, this whole year I'm trying to get my head around Emily and we have like five things, you know, we don't have much of, you know, of Emily left. Oh, yeah. Um, whereas uh, with Louisa, I feel like we have so much. Well, we do and we don't. We do have quite a bit of material, but. It seems to have been um, curated a bit, let's say. Okay, it's, okay. It's not necessarily unvarnished because she went back and edited journals, um, destroyed some, um, you know, and when, right after she died, her sister, older sister, Anna, who's Meg in the book, had um, had a writer, Edna Dow Cheney, who wrote... Um, kind of it's kind of a life letters and journals I think is the title of it sort of a, a you know biography and letters of Louise May Alcott and those were heavily edited and oh. some of the material in that book does not exist in its original form anymore so we don't know you know we don't know um and that and that book was heavily edited to present a particular image of her, I mean, it's kind of similar in a way to what Elizabeth Gaskell was doing with Charlotte Bronte, right? It's a very right. similar sort of process, kind of sanitizing her image, um, really presenting her as this dutiful daughter who was writing only to take care of her family. Um, you know, it was a very sort of pious view of her, um, rather sentimental, really. And May Alcott was a very troubled, um, you know, much more complicated person than that. How old was she when she started working, actually? Do you, rem- do you remember offhand? Well, I'm thinking it was probably when they left Concord. So she was 15. From the ages of 12 to 15, 
they lived at the house they called Hillside in Concord. And today it's called Wayside because after they lived there, Nathaniel Hawthorne and his family lived there. So now it's known as the Hawthorne House, but they lived there for three years. And it was a house that they had bought um, with Abigail's inheritance that she received from her father when her father died. And after a couple of years, it became more and more difficult to provide for themselves in Concord. There weren't, you know, there wasn't a lot of work they could do. You know, Abigail and the girls, I should say. And they were taking in boarders a lot. But, you know, the house was falling apart. And they couldn't keep it up. And they just couldn't figure out how to live and support themselves in Concord. So they had to move away to Boston when Louisa was 15. And she was devastated. She's very upset. Um, she had this, in some ways, a very idyllic few years there. It's actually at that house that many of the episodes that are described in the first part of Little Women happened. And I sort of think that in some ways, Little Women is Louisa imagining what would it have been like if she'd been able to stay there and grow up there, um, finish mm -hmm. growing up there. Because Joe, at the beginning of the book, is 15, and Louisa was 15 when she had to move away from the house. So they went to Boston, and that's really where her working life began. Um, her mother was uh, you know, one of the first social workers in America helping to find work for young women. And she, um, and Louisa was a teacher and she was, I think she was a governess. Her sister was a governess and a teacher. Um, sometimes they, you know, would have a little school wherever they were living. They moved around constantly. And so one of the jobs that she took was a job that came through um, from what her mother was doing, um, helping young women to find work. And the job that she found uh, that she had was to be an, an in-home, you know, domestic help for family. Uh, I think they were just outside of Boston, maybe. And so Louisa went and worked for them. It was a brother and a younger sister, perhaps. And she worked there for four weeks. And it was in Tolerable. It's surprising that she lasted for four weeks. They made her do all kinds of just menial labor. And she had to suffer the advances of this man who had hired her. And it was really intolerable. And she finally left. And when she left, I think they gave her like $4. And she was just disgusted. Um, but that scene, that sort of experience that she endured, and many of her other work experiences are described in her book called Work one of her novels for adults. It's quite fascinating. I think more pro more closely approximates the kind of uh, difficulty that Walt, that Alcott had earning a living than what we see in Little Women. You know, Little Women, Joe is a, you know, she reads to her aunt, who's kind of crotchety. Um, Anna's a governess to these children, but it doesn't seem like it's that difficult to work. It's right. steady work for them. But in real life, it wasn't like that at all. They were constantly trying to figure out, you know, new ways to make a living. Teaching ended up being one of the things that she did most frequently, but she didn't enjoy it. And all the time, though, I think we also have to remember that one of the primary ways that women had to earn money at that time was to write. And so she was writing stories. Um, she was 
you know, getting them published and making a little bit of money that way. It would be many, many years, though, until she would earn more money from her writing than teaching or any of her other things. And she was able finally to devote herself to the writing. Right. Now, do you have thoughts on her attitude towards uh, children's writing? I do. I do. Um, <clears throat> children's writing isn't something that she sought out to do. Her very first book, Flower Fables, was published, um, was it 52? I'm trying to remember exactly what year, but it was, it was published, you know, it was a very small run, um, but it was a collection of, of fairy stories that she had told to Ralph Waldo Emerson's children. And she'd been encouraged by him and others to write them down and publish them. So there's that precedent. But as she started really developing her career as a writer, she was not writing for children. She's writing very much for adults. Her thrillers, which Joe March also writes in Little Women, were, um, you know, they were full of opium addiction and, you know, kidnappings and incest and all kinds of crazy stuff. So definitely not for kids. <laughs> But those are, um, they're really very interesting. And she published them under pseudonym, though, because she didn't want people to know that she wrote them. But they made her more money than any other kind of writing she could do. So she, that's what she kept doing it. She seemed to enjoy it as well. But I think she thought of it as kind of a guilty pleasure. Like she was sort of ashamed of this work that she was doing and didn't want people to know about it. Um, and when she was asked to write this book for children, she had just started actually editing a children's magazine. It was kind of this time right about, you know, after the Civil War, that children's literature suddenly became a thing, right? Mm -hmm. it became this part of the market that was becoming more and more lucrative. And so she kind of stepped into it right when it was taking off. And uh, Little Women was a book that she was asked to write. Um, by a publisher and she wasn't really interested in writing a book for girls but you know she ended up doing it of course it was a major bestseller and you know ever after then she mostly wrote for children because it was just too lucrative not to do I mean she became mm -hmm. one of the wealthiest women in the United States um, if not the wealthiest and was able to provide for her family in perpetuity um, as a result. So it was, you know, she succeeded beyond her wildest dreams, but it wasn't her plan ever to become a writer for children. Now, when you were doing research for your book, did you look over, I'm sure you looked over all of Louise's journals and letters and just like, you know, just everything you could get your hands on. Um, what was it that maybe struck you the most? Or, you know, what did you make of her as sort of like a person? We've kind of got, got over this a little bit, but. Well, yeah, I had read, so I first encountered uh, Alcott as a person, let's say, when I was in graduate school, and I ended up writing about her in my first, in my dissertation, which became my first book, and what I, what I found so fascinating about her, and that's when I really devoured all the letters and the journals and went to Houghton Library at Harvard, which houses, you know, a lot of her papers, and I was so drawn to her as a person because she was so complicated. She felt so real, um, so relatable because she was struggling uh, 
so hard to figure out who she was, what she was capable of. And she had this tremendous ambition to be a famous writer. And that was the part of her that first attracted her to me. And I came to know her then not as a children's writer, but as a writer of serious literature for adults, because that was her first, that was the first thing that she really wanted to do. She always had this ambition from, you know, from very young to be famous. In fact, there's this great letter her mother wrote to her. She, she wrote her first poem when she was like five years old and her mother told her, you, you go, you'll grow up a Shakespeare. Right? So that seed was planted from early on and her parents encouraged this kind of ambition in her. And she really thought that she, um, that, that she could be famous and that May, her younger sister, could be a famous artist. <clears throat> and unfortunately, because of the poverty her family endured, she had to end up spending a lot of time writing more for money than for fame. But, you know, early on in her career, she was writing for the Atlantic Monthly. Um, and she was she had this serious novel for adults that she wrote, Moods, um, that got some amazing reviews. And the reviews, however, were mixed. In fact, you all would be really interested in this book, Moods, because there's a lot of connections to Jane Eyre in this book. Um, <clears throat> she's clearly heavily influenced by Jane Eyre. Um, she read uh, when Elizabeth Gaskell published her biography of Charlotte Bronte in, I think, 1855. Wilson, I'm sorry, Alcott, um, Alcott wrote about it in her journals. And she, she said, I may, you know, that she hoped she would be that famous so that someone would write her life someday. Um, and so she really saw, I think, you know, kind of had Charlotte Bronte as this model for herself of, you know, a writer who could be taken seriously um, and gain that kind of uh, gain that kind of fame not because they were just because they were popular but because they were taken serious by critics and that's what she really wanted early on um, and I think you know the financial need of her family sort of derailed a lot of that ambition but there's some really really good early stories and the novel moods is fascinating unfortunately the publisher made her cut it like in half um, to make it you know more financially feasible to publish and so she never felt like moods was really the book that she wanted it to be but she had very very high hopes for it so it's that struggle I guess that always interested me between her desire for fame and her need to support her family that um, that kind of tension always in her life that that really fascinated me her and Charlotte are so similar, too. Like, just... <laughs> I think they really are. Yeah. Because um, I, I also thought, like, sort of, um, not only the need to publish for money, but also the... And the, and the need for fame, in a way. Yeah. But just um, how frustrated they were. Right. Right. And having these male family members they have to take care of, too, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I think the kind of... My sense is the kind of isolation that Bronte experienced. Um, I think Wilson, I'm sorry, I keep calling her Wilson. I've heard another book about um, Wilson. I was talking to somebody about her the other day. So Alcott um, was someone who felt very isolated, even though she had, you know, Margaret Fuller coming to visit. She had Emerson and Thoreau. Um, 
you know, were constant visitors in her home, I think she still felt very much alone. Um, her mom was kind of the only person who really understood her. And you really see that in her novel Moods. This, the heroine in that book is, is so isolated emotionally. Um, she feels like such an outsider and there's nobody who really gets her. And I think, um, I think Louisa really felt that growing up. So we are back in the podcast hut. Well, I'm in the podcast hut. You're... I'm, in a pod- I'm in the podcast palace. Oh, wow. Well, your room does have three windows and it's like uh, bright and beautiful. So upgraded. It's all that podcast money. I've got a better house now. <laughs> all that cash flowing. Gosh, now you got a whole palace. It's almost like so- I swapped the big bucks business that is comics for the big bucks business that is podcasting <laughs> oh my goodness oh look to, at us can't wait to be a doctor as a hobby <laughs> three noble professions right comics podcasts doctoring <sighs> don't we all know it chapter nine <laughs> phoebe's secret so i did love this title because i was like oh oh Phoebe has a dark secret. Guess what? There's no mysteries in this book. No, she doesn't have a dark secret, guys. She doesn't. She has a sweet little secret. Um, Okay, so basically, Alec has arranged this surprise camping trip uh, across, you know, to this little island for Rose and the family. And it's all very lovely and jolly. And that's really Phoebe's secret. Like, she kind of, you know, she doesn't let on. She doesn't tell Rose that she's going to have a very special couple of days on the island. She bundles up her little thing, doesn't say anything. Yeah. 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 It's um, it's a cute little excursion, too. I was like, oh, that's sweet. I'd like to go. It's like swallows like and things, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lovely. Um, I really like Chapter 9 because there is a great moment in Chapter 9 about sacrifice. Yeah. Gets real, and real deep. We all know that this book can be like really wholesome and preachy, but I actually don't think this is too preachy. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, there is this like really lovely moment in chapter nine where Alec and Rose are discussing the nature of sacrifice, which is like a big concept. And yeah. I think it's distilled really well and with a lot of simplicity. Just like, oh, you know, Rose, like sacrifice is just giving up something that you yourself love in order, you know, to make someone else's life more comfortable and or better. And specifically with no reward. It's and not. specifically with no reward. Yeah. And um, I just, I don't know. I loved this moment because it was so simple. And when she asked him about something that like, he sacrificed... His answer is like, oh, well, I gave up smoking because I didn't think it was a great, you know, it wasn't wasn't great. Like it wasn't uh, the boys. I shouldn't do it. You know, it's not a good influence on the boys. So Alec is no longer smoking. I also love it. That's kind of just like a simple thing that he gave up because the thing about sacrifice um, is that I think it's a really big concept to like explain to a child. Yeah. And, you know, writing children's lit i would love to do like a whole episode on children's lit and just like talk about it and because it's it's very it's so difficult it's the hardest kind of writing you guys because 
you're you're also trying to instill some sort of moral or lesson into the child who's reading this book, right? And there's there's a lot of places you can go. I think sacrifice is a really great concept. Um, and that's a really, really difficult one to like pass down. And um, you know, when I was a child, they tried to pass down sacrifice to me in terms of like Jesus, mm-hmm. biblical, and it just the concept. I did not. I did. I, like five years old, I'm like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> it's yeah, on it's too like, big of a scale. It's a thing. Like someone can see that you are not doing the thing. Yes. Yeah. So I like how tangible this is, and I also feel like. We're missing a lot of this right now in children's lit because, I mean, when I was working as an editor in children's lit, I was mostly working on properties like Star Wars, Avengers, like things like that, which are really, really big in scale. And they do talk about sacrifice quite a bit. In fact, one of my friends actually, um, I remember her getting into it with me (laughs) because her like six-year-old son who was obsessed with Star Wars – like came to her after seeing Rogue One and like reading one of our Rogue One books and was just like, hey, mom, like what are suicide bombers? Oh, I know. And there's like big, like big ideas that are like, you know, that are military ideas in both Avengers and Star Wars. And they're all about like self-sacrifice in terms of, you know, killing yourself for the good guys. Yeah, for the coons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, um, you know, and I was thinking about this a lot yesterday when I saw Avengers and I was like, God, this is this movie is a lot about it's about genocide and about sacrifice, again, sacrificing yourself for the cause. And um, I don't know if I want to have these discussions with a five year old, you know, like I want to maybe make it something tangible first before we expand out. Yeah. So that's why I really like was drawn to this moment in this text. It's very simple. It's I can understand how as an adult reader, you would just pass over it. But I do think it's like something that it's very, you know, it's it's discussion worthy with a child. So, yeah, that's my that's my bit on sacrifice, guys. Now, um, the next day, chapter 10, Rose's sacrifice. Back on Um, it. Straight back on it. Back on it. Back on it. (laughs) No. Rose asks Archie. One of the many cousins. I, I'm getting them all confused. I have to be honest. I think I, um, I think I can remember them. Archie's the oldest, and then it's Charlie. No, then it's Mac. Oh, wrong. Carry on. See, yeah, it's hard. There's too many. Um, so yeah, Rose asked Archie if he's going back. You know, to the to the mainland to go pick up su- supplies. She's like, "Can I go back with you?" And he's like, "Yeah, sure, whatever." And um, she goes back and she grabs Phoebe and she's like, "Hey." I need you to go out into the island and uh, take this note, take this note out to them. And the note says, dear uncle, I'm going to take Phoebe's place today and let her have all the fun she can. Please don't mind what she says, but keep her and tell the boys to be very good to her for my sake. So, yeah, she switches places with Phoebe and does all of her her chores. chores. It's very sweet. I like it. Of course, everyone's like sort of disturbed because they've planned this whole trip for her. (laughs) And then she kind of bailed. Yeah, I think like the boys, especially, they don't really appreciate it, do they? They don't. And that's kind of one of the things that I actually also like about this chapter is that she does think that this is going to win her some points, doesn't she? 
she's like uh, she says something in this chapter about like the boys like not really respecting her and like that's looking the, down at her as a little girl the start chapter as the start of the next, the of the next. Yeah. okay yeah and then she's like what well, this is gonna win to win everyone over so she totally does it and the adults think it's very sweet they're into it but the boys are like totally baffled like what the hell well the boys don't get it because no from the sound of it well i mean like they they haven't had the they haven't yet to have the sacrifice chat i think at this point (laughs) right so someone needed to have the sacrifice chat with them so they're just like oh that's weird like yeah they're kind of like that's that's odd um and she's a bit disappointed by that. But I also think this is another good lesson of like, sometimes you think you're doing something that's good and you're going to win like brownie points, but you, you don't really have the full picture. But also just like the reality reality versus expectation. When I graduated, yes. I was convinced I was going to get a graduation helium balloon. And that came purely from my own mind and thinking, It'd be really lovely if someone got me a balloon. <laughs> Didn't say to anyone. And then I was right. upset. And like yeah. the logical part of my brain was just like, Hannah, you cannot be upset for not being given a balloon. Nobody knows you want. You're an, you're an adult. You don't need a balloon. And I told Alice. And so I got a birthday balloon uh, the following week. Oh, good. Good, good. Thrilled, like best, best present I got. But it's, it is almost like she thinks she thinks the reaction will be, one way or like actually and you know she doesn't she underestimates kind of how hard it's gonna be as well doesn't she yeah she does so she really does yeah it's it's interesting because i think that i've seen this like over time in some of these chapters and i might be putting too much thought into it because again it's a children's book we're trying to teach some lessons here but like Rose is trying to win favor. She's trying to win brownie points. And I don't know if this means that she's just insecure within her position, her new home. I mean, I think or... she's cut her some slack. I think she's trying to do a nice <laughs> thing. You guys are horrible to <laughs> I very rarely feel like I need to be defensive about a book. But I think, you know, it's absolute. you can absolutely be trying to do a nice thing and still even though you're trying to not expect praise because she's told you can't expect it to still as a child have a little part of you that wants people to be like, Hey man, that was cool. Yeah. (laughs) No, I think that's fair. I don't think like, I don't think her motives are that she's trying to like make people think that I personally, I think that Rose is very secure in, uh, in how, like her value within the family. Well, maybe I just distrust nice people. I think that I think you're projecting is my opinion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time. Um one of the things this kind of brought up actually was her relationship with Phoebe. Mm-hmm. Which I think is a very interesting rela- relationship. Um we're gonna go I'm gonna go ahead and give commenter of the week to Carly Groff early on in the episode, early metal to achieve. Um, Because in response to sort of like, you know, Phoebe and Rose on the Facebook group, she said, in general, I don't understand their friendship. Every now and then Rose suddenly realizes that Phoebe deserves fun and presence too, and thus does a kind act, but it seems more like charity. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, 
it's a, I mean, I think it's a class situation, right? Like, I don't think Rose knows any other way. No, she, like, no, she doesn't. Like, yeah. I don't yeah, know. The, the friendship isn't on equal footing. It's never going to be on equal footing. No, That's the of thing. course not. Like, Phoebe is like, a servant. Rose is an heiress. Yeah. And it's 18- and, and they both know their place, too. <laughs> yeah. That's the other thing. Um, they both know their place within this relationship. And I also don't, I don't think Louisa May Alcott meant this to be a, ta- a text about class either. I would like to know, I would like to know her thoughts on class, but um, I do think she's being realistic with these roles, mm-hmm. you know, and this is not a story about Phoebe. It's a story about Rose. But um, it's just like one of the things that's fascinating about Downton Abbey is like, having having servants around you that are as close as family but are not your family because they are your staff and how weird and difficult and alien for most of us that is you know Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely I've, I've got no like point of entry with this so you read it and like I will never know what it is like to grow up and want to make friends with the family servant who is the same age or a little older or a little younger than me, you know? Like, what an odd situation to be in. It's like genuinely like someone and know that you're their employer. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think Rose has a little... She's got guilt, right? And she tries to make it okay. (laughs) She's like, I want to be your friend. I want to be your sister. I'm trying to make it okay. But I think any act that she does with Phoebe is going to be seen as an act of charity. Yeah. It it is. Because it it is. It is. And I also think that was like sort of, but yeah, there's just, there's no, there's no equality in this relationship. There's never going to be. I also don't, I I don't think it is fair to say that a child (laughs) in the late Victorian era, um, who is having a relationship with a member of a different, of a different class is like dumb or a bit like a bit dim. I can't remember what the phrase is. I think Lauren, yeah. Was it? Was it you that said she's not the sharpest tool in the shed? She's trying, <laughs> guys. It's a child. It's a fictional child. Written, yeah, I mean, like, I love what you said that, like, <laughs> this is a, a case of, like, people not checking their privilege. And that's not even, because that that's even, not even a that thing. Exist. Yeah. It's not so a it's thing. It's not even, yeah. like, this is something that she knows about or that adults are saying to her, like, I mean, Alec is trying to say, it's, like, that's that's the first chat he has with her, isn't it? When he's like... The modern, that's the modern, the modern day equivalent of that would be him saying, mate, you need to check your privilege. Like you're just rubbing in her face that she doesn't have all of this stuff, you know, mm-hmm. and something that Rose does. And it is, it's a character flaw. It, it's one of the ways in which she is like a rounded character. She repeatedly and does it in Rose and Bloom as well. Um, she romanticizes things. She gets carried away. She's a dreamer. She's like mm-hmm. Sansa Stark in the song of ice and fire you know she's she's read a lot of stories she's been living in these books and she's applying fictional ways of being and like just adopting people or like giving away your treasure and stuff she's applying those to her life and it isn't it's not healthy um and also uh so the point that i made on facebook was that actually like the sacrifice she makes um and that the the work being harder than she imagined it would be it's kind of like the prince and the pauper like we like it's a story that happens a lot in literature people Mm -hmm. in positions of power like 
fantasizing about what it would be like to have like a simpler life you know like that fashionizing your life is so simple and people like not quite understanding the complexities of the other person's life because they haven't lived it right like in Aladdin you know and they sit there yeah wow imagine living in the palace and she's like wow imagine not living in the palace yeah exactly so yeah and Rose is just having like that learning moment of like oh wait you know but she she has to have that moment she does I I like it I like that she has it um I also have to think too like I'm thinking on like who this magazine is like marketed towards so like I think that's always important to keep in mind when thinking about a piece of literature that you're reading like who is this made for who is it marketed towards this is going to be marketed towards like middle class, upper middle class children, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, poor, like sadly, poor kids are not reading this. So, the these lessons that she's trying to write, these are speaking to like middle class children who you know maybe have servants, yeah. and maybe to inspire them like to think about these people in different ways. Yeah, and like you can be respectful of the work people are doing and like appreciate what someone's doing for you. Don't give them your secondhand like party dress. <laughs> right. Or like yeah. treat. I mean, with... what is she going to do with a party dress? Yeah. I mean, unless you're taking her dancing, not a lot. Not a lot. Not a lot. So, um, yeah, I know that Carly was just like, I'm really kind of confused by Louisa May Alcott's definition of sisterhood. But I think that definition has evolved over time. And so our definition is different Mm -hmm. than hers, for sure. Um, We're just not living in the same, you know, in the same society. Um, Chapter 11, poor Mac. Poor Mac, indeed. This, like, hit me out of nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) I was, like, expecting another wholesome lesson. And then, like, Mac suffers from sunstroke. And then his eyes give out. Yeah very rochester he goes blind he does he just like immediately goes like like what the hell and um rose just you know she decides to be his nursemaid which she has experience with this remember she had an invalid father yeah yeah so um what i also kind of liked about this chapter was that like everyone kind of like dances around his condition like no one really gives him the full business the parent his parents don't want to tell him they're just like oh no, no we can't we couldn't possibly and they leave it to her they leave it to her to do they leave it to her and i actually thought that was very realistic i'm getting shades of elizabeth gaskell here <laughs> yeah it goes a little bit gaskell doesn't it yeah so rose becomes um his nursemaid now mac is the worm so he's the nerdy one yeah for to classify him and um, she, you know, she's just going to sit by his side, take care of him, read to him because, you know, his eyes have given out. Like, what else is he going to do? And um, stories and poetry are Rose's thing. So we're just noting this, just putting a pin in this. Um, but Mac, he wants to, you know, hear serious material like biographies and histories of discoveries and inventions. Interesting. This is like a discussion we've had before, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it will come so, up again. Like, yeah. So yeah. you can tell he's a very serious boy. Um, One day while reading the history of the French Revolution, which must have been, I mean, just riveting. Like real interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I just watched Les Mis, mate. Do that. <laughs> Stick it on. 
He's not allowed to watch the TV though, so he just no, he can't do it. Listening to Lamus. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear, not bad, not bad. Um, Max is like, hey, what is going on? (laughs) What has the doctor said? Like, I need to know. No one will tell me. And then, um, you know, Rose basically is like, hey, it's it might be a while before your eyesight returns. We don't really know what's going on. Sorry. I feel bad for her in this moment. That's a lot of. That's a lot of shit to put on a 13-year-old girl. It is. And she, but she she does it, you know? She does it. God bless. And, um, you know, Mac really struggles with it. He does say, uh, well, you know, Homer was blind and so was Milton. And they did something to be remembered by in spite of it. So he's like, okay, like, yeah, I'm going to try to soldier on. So when he said that, I kind of thought that would be it. You know, like I kind of thought they would drop it, to be honest. Yeah, but no. But then in chapter 12, the other fellows, like, yeah, it's just we're still dealing with uh, Mac and his blindness and sort of his cousins and slash brothers, like his family's sort of refusal to kind of like, I don't know, like they don't really want to get close. They don't really want to deal with it. It's like Rose is the only one that's really like helping him out. Like the boys kind of come see him and they're just rowdy and obnoxious and not really doing him any good boys will be boys boys will be boys that is like sort of the the message of that chapter and rose has to like she has to like set everyone straight like listen guys (laughs) he's going through some shit makes my blood boil though i'll talk about it um my only other you're livid yeah well, I think the big thing I kept thinking about during chapter 12 was like, where's Alec? Like, we were getting a real break from Alec, it feels like. My, you know, my yeah. manic pixie dream boyfriend here. Where's he gone? And also, like, his nephew has gone blind. He's a doctor. And he's just kind of like, I mean, the one line we get of Alex in chapter 12 is, um, Rose had gone for a drive with Uncle Alec, who declared that she was getting pale as a potato sprout living so much in a dark room well alec is a like alec is a man lauren so he doesn't have to be at the bedside of a sickly child (laughs) um also mac isn't in danger he just has to be entertained so but i just felt like i I was missing some of alec's wholesome advice yeah well dealing with mac only for rose because rose is his favorite but do you know yeah seriously no she seriously is but and this is but this this is one of the things is like um all of no one else is patient because she does this with aunt peace as well so it's like rose is the caregiver and she's kind of just left to do it and like aunt jesse can't do it because she's got jamie like everyone's got other stuff that they're doing and it's yeah school holidays so the other guys don't want to be there and it's just yeah it's just very margaret hale just doing the thing that no one else is doing because it is because she's nice like she is a nice girl she is she trying. is well she seems to take to this role pretty naturally actually uh, and actually this and she's not doing it to like win brownie points either like this actually does seem like something she goes okay wait a minute this is, i need to do like this. this just needs to be done you know yeah and there is that line that i don't know why i just found it really touching so the his mum goes up um i think towards the end of the chapter to take him some food and she's the only one that is allowed to feed him so his mum is there you know but like yeah. again running a household she's got she's got a life to to go and live and 
not not like a life to go and live but no one wants to leave him on the on his own but who wants who wants to sit there and just read just for hours on end i mean just rose just rose um but yeah i did i liked that little line like the thought that like his mum goes up and like she's like this is what i do like this is our time she has you know she has her time with him i think think yeah yeah i just was like hey man alex you like ghosting on me just got stuff going on what what are you doing man that's all smoking the hash (laughs) (laughs) throwback to chapter whatever he really is a manic pixie dream like boyfriend because he's like real intense and he's really in there and then like you're like wait hey where are you did you get my text are you where have you been (laughs) what's going on and he's just like oh you know i've just got stuff going on i'm just I'll see you in a few. He finally replies, but it's not a reply. It's just different conversation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, I, oh, by I, the I way, feel that this let's is gonna happen. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> been for six months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was crazy. Wish you were there. Anyway, chapter thirteen. Your chapter. I'm up. It's me. Right, chapter thirteen. Cozy corner. We're still with Mac. Uh, Mac has recovered more, a little bit more, uh, by the time we hit chapter 13. He's allowed out of the dark room. He doesn't have to wear the little shield over his eyes. But he does have to walk around like a blue cyclops wearing some goggles. And I was trying to figure out what Victorian goggles would look like. So I'm thinking like swimming goggles or maybe like some big brass, like steampunk things. Oh, I hope they are. It did remind me of in the book of um the wizard of oz which is delightful if you haven't read it um the emerald city is actually made of glass but everything looks like it's emeralds because they were wearing these green glasses that are locked onto their heads mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is amazing that and is so cool that's what's happening to him um if anyone has an illustrated edition of this book that has pictures of max goggles send them in please max goggles steve's top knot yeah we need max to see West. it because the top knot gets another mention and it's like yeah it does is it (laughs) it is a man bun it's a man bun a man bun i 100 percent believe it's a man bun so uncle alec does make like a brief appearance he's basically like yeah go go on holiday go away for a month get out of my sight so he sends uh rose mac aunt jesse and obviously little jamie up into the mountains uh he sends them to portland and the yeah, thing that I found funny about this is that, like, Portland in 1875 is still as hipster and old school as it is <laughs> supposedly now, because everyone's just like, the good old days, let's ride in a car, and, like, there's a chicken in the house. <laughs> <laughs> now, I was about to, like, when I saw this in your notes, I was like, okay, you've got the right Portland, right? Because we have two, but you know what? They're both hipstery, so it's fine. <laughs> Just which whichever one um, the guy from the Decemberists really likes to hang out in. Have you read his book? You know what? Unclear. It could be either. Still could be either. His book is trash. Anyway, <laughs> that's a book that kids don't need to read. Uh, I, no, I think it won awards. I just didn't like it. Um, mm. Also, the guess who goes on this holiday? Pokey. And oh mom. my God, finally. Life, mystery is solved. Pokey is not a servant. Neighbours. Neighbors. Neighbors. This chapter is like insanely wholesome. Like everything is just brown bread. Uh, mm-hmm. They go and save this family. 
their parents are mother and father Atkinson. They've got three daughters and they live on a farm. There's like 10,000 animals. They all live in the house. Like people are eating dinner. There's cats on their lap. Uh, I yeah. think there's a horse inside. I can't remember what animal. It's so Portland. So Portland. There's chickens on the floor. And uh, there's just loads of kids as well. Like I really, I, I gave up trying to figure out who all these oh, kids were. Oh, me too. They're I was just, like, I don't know who these kids there's are. There's like the snow kids and the dove kids and like the kids' kids. And they they start a little army and they start like stomping around together. And Mac and Rose, who are obviously, um, so they're teenagers. And the oldest one who's in this like little militia is 11. And his name's Jack. Yeah. Um, and so Rose and Mac are like spying on them and they walk past this, um, graveyard and like they will take off their hats and they drag their banners they're not all like jolly and raucous and then they go into this church and they like sing a hymn and they say prayers and then um yeah they're like described as like having those curly heads and their little lisping voices and the, there's a quote and it goes tears came into rose's eyes as she looked mac took his hat off involuntarily and then clapped it on again as if ashamed of showing any feeling and i was just like oh come on (laughs) lame (laughs) i was not into it i was just like no way man who cares but then um i did think that louisa may brought it straight back because all of the kids then start having an argument so the oldest (laughs) one And again, this is just laying up for a later scene. The oldest one is like, well, you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do this. And like, make sure that if this kid wants to build a little house next to your little house, you should just let them because they're going to do it anyway. And then all of the other kids are like, hey, I'm not having that. You stole this off me and you're a dickhead for this reason. (laughs) And just like start giving as good as they get and they have this like argument. And this poor kid just doesn't know what to say. He's basically like, oh yeah, oh man, let's go. (laughs) And then they sing a hymn and then go and have lunch. So that happened. That was a, you know. I like that part when the kid called the other one a dickhead. That was funny. That was, yeah, I mean that's a Victorian slang. The trip is like doing amazing things for Max. Obviously he's just spent all of this time cooped up. He gets angry. He's described as growling a lot in the last two chapters. I don't think he growls at all in this one. And his expectations were of lying in a hammock and being read to, but instead he's, uh, oh, he's a town planner, you know, they're building a little model town yes. in the field and he's overseeing it. And there's all these examples of kids like learning by doing and sharing knowledge and just like unconventional learning. If you think about like a Victorian school and what that brings to mind and like learning by rote uh, and then they're out there, you know, what's interesting to them in that moment, you know? So there's a quote, Mac also developed a geological mania and went tapping about at rocks and stones, discoursing wisely of strata, periods and fossil remains, while Rose picked up leaves and lichens and gave him lessons on botany in return for his lectures on geology. Yeah. And then These towards kids the are end, getting learned. it says, it was evident that Dr. Alec had prescribed the right medicine for his patients. Oh, Alec. Oh, Alec. You're he would. so right. <laughs> chapter 14 yes. a happy birthday um it's rose's birthday in this chapter guys and because rose is better than all of us the perfect child 
in every way. Uh, she hasn't oh, yes. been going on about it for months and months and telling people about her Amazon wish list. Uh, so she is worried <laughs> that people have forgotten. But she doesn't need to worry because Rose is everybody's favourite. She wakes up and there's a kitten bumping her on the nose. She is a gift from uh, Frank, who I think is one of the random children. Yeah. And then she gets loads of presents that are unspecified over the course of the day because she's a favourite. Louise May yeah. makes a point of telling us it's because Rose is a favourite. It's like, really? I didn't picked know. up on that in 13 chapters. <laughs> so they are going to go and have like this big picnic on the hill to celebrate. There's like wagons going up, I'm imagining. Like just baskets and piles of food. This family knows how to do it up. Yeah, it sounds great. Someone, when we when we go to Massachusetts, can someone do this for me? I know, right? That it would be great. It would be great. And um, guess what? Rose's horse riding. A couple of chapters ago, she wouldn't have been doing that, but she's yeah, made a yeah. point of learning because she knows that Uncle Alec will want to see that she's, you know, tried. Um, mm-hmm. Mac gets her to go on the horse, and he's like, "You should go now. Don't look back at the house," you know like in the Bible story. Uh, but she turns around <laughs> anyway. It? Yeah, there's the one, the pillar, she turns into the soul and then she blows away or something. Oh yeah, I don't know anything. Well, that happens. <laughs> she turns around and guess who she sees? Uncle Alec, of course. He's the greatest present of all. So of she course. gallops the horse down. I think she was on the hill. She gallops the horse down and then she flies off it. And she falls. And um, Uncle Alec's like, hey, are you okay, kid? she says this great line my feelings are hurt but my bones are all safe I'm great just line saying that to guys when they're like hey i think we should still be friends i'll be like you've hurt my feelings but i'm fine leave me alone i think no word for word my feelings, my feelings are hurt, are hurt but my bones are all safe. all safe i yeah. think we're gonna start saying that now to people okay. one more time yeah. on three one my feelings oh, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't wait for the three i'm terrible <laughs> move i'm just moving on all right fine but guys, say it at home, embroider it, hashtag it. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesse and Alec have a little catch up, and Jesse, Aunt Jesse, is like, well, kind of let Rose turn into a tomboy. And she's been running around just unchecked. And um this is probably the start of these chapters then becoming really difficult to read, right? Yeah. Uh lots and lots of gender role stuff coming up and it's it's a ride it's a ride and as Carly pointed out rightly on Facebook after the first chapters when you consider all of the stuff about like girls should run around as well and you know boys can play with dolls and all of this and you're like cool. and manage your own money too, and which your I own think money. is huge and then we've got this um so we're gonna break it down and talk about it but my gosh uh, <laughs> Uncle Alec is like hey it's fine tomboys make strong women usually 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 weird line tomboys make strong women usually mm-hmm. and i'm just like strong for what like pushing out babies <laughs> and cleaning the house like <laughs> okay because all, all he all he seems to think is that that's what women are for um they have a, a lunch up on the hill like i said they decide to play charades and i do think the old-fashioned charade sounds way better than once a year me trying to drunkenly act out harry potter for like my mum and my stepdad yeah Whoa, probably movie two words i'm just mouthing harry potter at them <laughs> um so they do that mac and rose then do like a little charade where 
they're doing they're acting out the early bird catches the worm and mac is like rolling on the floor like a worm which is <laughs> funny that's funny it was good a good joke and then the good random job, boys uh start reenacting the life of napoleon and i i'd be there for that that sounds great everyone loved it and it went on for pages yeah yeah it really did but you know it sounded great um i think like pokey and jamie fall in a puddle at some point they get sent home and then rose kind of starts admitting to uncle alec just about all of the things that she's been up to and just is kind of like yeah i've been doing all of this stuff i've been running around i've been having a great time i can ride a horse now um and like every everyone is just very aware of like how physically active rose has been and i think there's some like trepidation about what life is going to be back when the aunts are there because there is very yeah. much like how rose can behave when she's with uncle alec and the boys and how rose is with the women right um and he said and he says oh well you you're getting so rampant you'll defy me next and she says i shouldn't dare because you are my guardian and you can put me in a straight jacket if you like and <laughs> this got quite a strong uh, reaction on the facebook group and yeah like haha good joke rose he could like he absolutely he could. could yeah uh joy on our facebook group said that she and her daughters always joke about how she could ruin their lives and probably their sanity by committing them to a mental institution uh what a fun and totally appropriate joke between family members and it's right like these are things we joke about i always make fun of my mum and tell her i'm gonna put her in the cheapest home i can find <laughs> so terrible there we go and we I are kind of liked it as a reminder. I thought it was really like it was jarring. It is jarring. In that I scene. think, and I, I kind of liked it that I was like, yeah. "Oh, that's important to remember." FYI. But then it says like she. I liked that Rose was also. Face. Yeah, yeah. But she, she's but, not. She's not scared of this happening. Like she's no, not she's not because she thinks it's going to happen. I. It's funny because it's like it's out of character for her. Like if she made a lot of saucy comments, then. Yeah. We would all be like, oh, that's Rose being Rose. But then you're just like, oh, that that's a bit jarring from her character. But I don't know. I thought it was like an important reminder. Like, don't get too comfortable, ladies. We can still send you off to an asylum for no good reason. I think Rose is only going to get saucier as time goes by. Oh. Because it's the, it's, it's the health thing. It's confidence. It's feeling like an ownership yeah. of your life and feeling like confident enough to be able to make those jokes, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so at bedtime, she uh, finds a little gift from her uncle, which is a set of miniatures of her parents. And it is this really sweet and sad reminder that Rose is an orphan and she's not with her family on her birthday. And she does love her dad and misses her mum and, as much as like she's surrounded by this family, she doesn't have her parents. And she says, yeah. I'll truly try to make them glad to see me by and by. She's like, yeah, I hope that when I'm reunited with them in death, they are pleased to see me. Yeah. That's a little birthday bedtime prayer. That's so sad. It's very sad. Really sad. And that is the end of the holiday. So the next day they all, they all return home. And I loved the description of like trying to set off and they keep stopping and starting because it's like, oh wait, no, take some pies with you. Bread and butter is not enough. And then wait, come back. Pokey stole some cats. And there's just these <laughs> kids in a bag. Best part. 
best Three. part. That was I love weird. it. <laughs> um, and then also suddenly it's like, wait, remember you said that you had the bread and butter? You don't. It's here. Come back. Like awful. And then Rose is like, oh, guys, um, yeah, remember when I fell off my horse yesterday and then I spent hours running around on it since? I've sprained my ankle. So just in case you forgot for a minute, you know, do your hourly check. Is Rose better than me? Yes. Here it is. (laughs) I would have been complaining, man. I fell off a skateboard yesterday and I was like, oh, guys, don't know if I can keep going. I know. I was fine. Well, she's a saint, that Rose. She is a saint. Chapter 15. Ear. Rings. Did a pause Hmm. because they're two separate words. It's one word now, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Ear rings. Ear rings. Ear rings. Lesson learned, guys. So obviously the last episode, uh, the last chapter finishes with Rose saying, hey, I sprained my ankle. Well, it turns out that because she didn't say anything and was kind of just running around on it, it's now actually a serious sprain. A little bit like Bend It Like Beckham. Mm, remember that film? <laughs> just like Deep cut. That. Deep cut, guys. <laughs> And now uh, she will never play football again. She has to coach a women's football team. Uh, no, much like Mac, she's just got to sit around for a bit. I feel like these two things happen very close together. <laughs> it's like, Mac can't leave the house and then we'll go on holiday. And Rose can't leave the house for two weeks. But right. the good thing is, because she's just done that massive favour for him... Mac is like, I'll hang out with you and I'll like run around and get you stuff because again, she can't move. She can't get off the sofa. And right. uh, she teaches him to knit or as they call it in the book, how to click the pricks. Yeah. Which that was jarring I, for me. I will absolutely be calling it that from now on. Oh, yes. Just going to click now the you're, pricks. Now, just to be clear, you're going to be calling knitting that from yes. now on, right? Yeah. Okay. Just That's not other knitting. things. Okay. No, absolutely right. knitting. Okay, um, and I I do love to click the pricks. So oh, I do yeah. often. I who doesn't? The, I click the pricks at work, Lauren. I know, I know you do. <laughs> you have a clicking the pricks problem. I yeah, some would say it's a problem. <laughs> um, so Rose is sitting in the parlor and she's uh, entertaining herself, and Jamie and Pokey are playing in the corner of the room, and then suddenly. Who should appear but Annabelle Bliss, that stuffed up little girl. Is it Annabelle or Adrian? No, um, uh, I think that Uncle Alec was either making a joke or just forgot her name. And he he called her, um, it wasn't Adrian, was it? It was... Because I was like so confused. Hold on. A- A- Adrian Blish or something like that. And it, he didn't yeah. even say her surname right. He was like... The, I think yeah. He doesn't like her, so he's calling her a weird name. I like how it just went over my head where I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But what I loved about this is that we get some insight from Annabelle, who does not like Rose either. She thinks she's a stuck up puss. Yeah. But but she has to be her friend because old family, everyone loves her. Like, it's a cool house to go and hang out in. It's a power move. Like, this is warfare. This whole chapter is psychological warfare and it's <laughs> finally great. and like finally in, like, this is my it, kind it's of book in the text 
every every part of this is just like, yeah, well, your move, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, they start talking about like speaking French or, you know, and Rose, we know, has a problem with vanity, one of her flaws. She's very vain about her French. And I think she was a bit rude. And she hurts. Yeah. She hurts um, Annabelle's feelings basically by being like, I'm not studying French. I speak it fluently, actually. And like me and my <laughs> uncle, we talk in French together all the time. And I'd, I'd happily like help you with your French because I know you don't have anyone to speak French with. <sighs> yeah. Um, and I loved this line. Uh, now Annabelle, though she looked like a wax doll, had feelings within her instead of sawdust. And those feelings were hurt. By Rose's lofty tone. Yeah, great line. Great line, isn't it? Yeah. But I Annabelle, do like that she's worry. reminding you, like, you know what? She might be um totally her enemy, but she still has feelings, y'all. She's got feelings. But it's a I mean, don't worry, Annabelle's got guns with her, man. She's just like <laughs> flicks her hair back and she's like, Yeah, how do you like my earrings? Look at these. Oh, shit. Yeah, she just definitely, like, drops the mic there with the earrings line. (laughs) And she's like, they jangle, like, listen to them. Um, And I think those earrings sound, like, equally, in, like, equal parts, really great and also really annoying. Uh, And then all of a sudden, it's, like, the parent trap. They're piercing ears with a needle. And it's big secret. Like, Alex not allowed to know. The boys aren't allowed to know. And uh, Annabelle's just like, yeah, I mean, just put your smallest pair of earrings in and then you go and see how much your uncle likes them. He's going to love them. My dad loves my earrings. He's going to buy me earrings. And what what's quite, like, it's a little bit sad is that one of the motivations for Rose wanting it is that she she owns these earrings that belong to her mum. Mm-hmm. And, like, imagine, like, she can't wear them. Her ears aren't pierced. The other girls your age have got yours. I remember getting mine done when I was 11 um, after being given a pair of earrings for Christmas by my uncle. My mum really didn't want me to have my ears pierced yet. Mm-hmm. And I have worn the same pair of earrings uh, like every day uh, for like three years. <laughs> like I really don't <laughs> care about having my ears pierced and I think I probably wouldn't have had them done if I'd known that was the case. Right, yeah. So, you know, there are some comments coming up from Uncle Alec, which is just like, you're wrong. You are wrong. Um, he doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. So going back to the idea that Alcott is describing this like it's warfare, like this is a cutthroat battle. There's a line, uh, Rose said punch in the tone of one giving the a fatal order, fire. Yeah. Like, cool, great. And then the girl who spoke French with a fine accent lay flat upon the sofa, looking exhausted as if she has had both ears cut off. Excellent line as well. She's a very fine writer. I know I said this last episode. She's a very fine writer. It's just in there. Yeah. And it's simple and it's short. It's just concise. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really lovely. Like two two or three of those things. And you've got the image. You're like, oh, this chapter is a battle. And like, that's it's all you need. It's not. Yeah. Um, So then the bunch of the guys arrive. They've got loads of nuts and they're going to stay over and roast them. And poor Annabella wants an invite and no one invites her. So she has to leave. And then they go and stand in the other room and have an argument about who's got to walk her home. And I think Steve calls her a chit. Yeah. Uncle Alec overhears and he's like, oh, I'm going to take her 
you guys are rude you are being awful and then um but don't worry because rose has already got her bestie mac to do it and alec calls him a gentleman like very pointedly it's italicized he goes Mm -hmm. gentleman's gonna do it uh and then so annabelle leaves and then they all have tea and rose is kind of horrible again yeah she is so over to the world of 13 year old girls though yeah right bitchy yeah so they're having these nuts all of the nuts are really hot and someone's i think someone's like oh tell us a story because you're our favorite uh, and so she starts telling them the story of a little girl who steals a roll of bandage. And then as she's telling this story, we start getting a play-by-play of Pokey's reactions. Because guess what? Pokey stole three nuts and Rose knows. <laughs> Rose is calling her out. Pokey is turning shit. out to be my favorite character, by the way. Pokey's a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone is so mean to Pokey. Um, so yeah, by the end of the story, Pokey's in like floods of tears and Alex says to Rose, he goes, come Rose, it's too bad to tell her little tricks before everyone and preach at her in that way. You wouldn't like it yourself. And he's right. So what I do like about that is like Rose is his favorite and he does think that the sun shines out of her bottom, but he like, he's going to tell her when he thinks she's being unfair, mm-hmm. you know, and she did behave really badly. And then yeah. on top of that, Dun, dun, dun. Just like the scene in the church, Jamie is straight in. He's like, yeah, well, guess what? I was in the room when you had your ears pierced, bitch. He called her out. <laughs> it's just straight in. He's like, no. <laughs> like, you're a liar. And then, oh, it was insane. So all of the boys, and like, they lose their minds and they're like making fun of her and she hides her head in the pillow. Bearing in mind, she's got the sprained ankle, so she can't run away. Um, <laughs> one of them says, now she go prancing around with bird cages and baskets and carts and pigs, for all I know, in her ears, as all the other girls do. And won't she look a goose? But True. It's fine. They all calm down. Then they all start blaming Annabelle. <laughs> right. This is actually very realistic, though, because like, I, I was quite the tomboy when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And whenever I did anything that would be perceived as girly. Yeah. It's like they're threatened. They're like, oh, we're going to lose our friend now. Now you're going to be, you're going to be this other person. Yeah. Now you're but a girl. But, and like Rose loves like dainty, pretty, frilly, girly things. Yes. Like it comes up time, time again. And like that is, again, something that I don't relate to. And it was the peer pressure of being the only girl at school who didn't have her ear ears pierced that I was responding to and as an adult Mm -hmm. actually I don't wear I don't like wearing a lot of jewelry I think it's impractical I hate taking rings off to do the washing up I lost like a very precious ring to me doing it um I don't like wearing watches I and I'm just always really self-conscious when I've got it on Mm -hmm. so I just I wish I could go back in time I think I must have read this as a kid and been like I should get my ears pierced and when they weren't, I was obsessed with the idea of doing it with a needle. Really? Because they do it in Greece and they do it in the parent trap and uh, they do it in this. Ah. Uh, so but I'm glad I, I was didn't. like never bothered by it. My mom pressured me to do it at one point. She was like, just do it. Really? Mom, my mom was yeah. so against it. My mom got peer pressured by both of my aunties. So we both got peer pressured into one, having my ears pierced and two, letting me have my ears pierced. <laughs> I like did not even care. I just people just kept saying like, "When are you gonna get your ears pierced?" And I was like, "I don't know." 
I don't care. And then I did it at like 15, 16. And then I had to redo it at like 22. And then again at 30. And then you got two regrets, Lauren. One, getting my ears pierced. And two, well, I can't say it because I'll be arrested. Uh oh. Uh oh. We'll we'll talk about that off off air. Off mic. Right. Get ready for some sexism because um, observant world. (laughs) You should put that on a t shirt. Closes the. (laughs) Okay. Get ready for sexism. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We should do. Um, He says to close off the chapter, he goes, I see she is a girl after all and must have her vanities like all the rest of them. And then he he sighs and it says, as if he he had expected to find Rose, a sort of angel above all earthly temptation. And I'm just like, yeah, he did expect to find her an angel who was above all earthly temptation. Uh, earthly temptation because he's a man and she's a girl and women are not allowed to want things for themselves it's true he's like i just thought i was gonna fill this girl's head with all of my nonsense and she would just blindly follow me forever but alas she is her own person and no she's not her own person she's a mindless woman that's true she's a mindless woman um, and then he's like, well, if she's got her ears pierced, she should have a nose ring like a cow. Don't worry, I've got one. So then all the boys start running around her and they're like, yeah, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. But then eventually she's like, save me. So he does save her and he picks her up. He relents and he ends up saying, you can have gold earrings and you don't have to have a nose ring. And uh, it's a, a proceeding which proved that if Rose had all the weakness of her sex for jewellery, he had all the inconsistency of his in giving a pretty penitent exactly what she wanted, spite of his better judgment. Yeah. I hated that line. <laughs> I hate that line. It's pretty bad. It's social conditioning, Louisa. <laughs> but that... <laughs> That's the thing, isn't it? That's reading it in 2018. Yeah, And knowing that. Because people believed this stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, it's crazy. So, get me off this. Well, I'm actually coming back to this (laughs) because... Brand Buttonholes, chapter 16. I've decided that Brand Buttonholes is the name of our indie funk, uh, indie folk duo, Lauren. That sounds good. I can just imagine the dresses that we'd wear. Yeah. Very like Little House on I don't the Prairie. Know. Yeah. Like, I don't know what instruments we'd play or like, what we'd well, sing, but I know I the, the aesthetics. Harmonica. Oh, really? I play the harmonica and you play the synth. Oh, okay. Because it's indie folk. Okay. okay. Yeah, I Red get it. I get it. Holes. Okay. So um, Alec finds Rose having a think. And uh, he doesn't like drop down dead that in shock that she's got a brain, you know, does acknowledge that a woman can think. Um, mm-hmm. He uh, he kind of like, hey, what's up? And she's like, well, you know, when I was on holiday, all the girls, the Atkinson girls, they all had like a skill, something they could do. And actually they knew like lots of different things. And uh, I think that I should have one just in case I don't have any money one day, you know. Like I need right. just a little something that I can fall back on. And again, like at, at reenactment, um, I've learned how to, like I've learned basically every job that a woman could have done. 
mm-hmm. and like I can do it. Uh, and also a lot of jobs that guys would have done because the guys can't be bothered to do it because in medieval, like some somewhere along the lines, like the roles have reversed. And so like cooking for the army wouldn't have been done by women. It would have been done by men and like fixing their uniforms. They would have been fixing their own uniforms, but somehow the women in the group are doing it. And they're like, oh, because it's authentic. And it's like, it isn't authentic. Anyway, (laughs) rant. Um, So she's like, I need to to find a job to do. And then uh, there's a line, looking as if she rather longed for a little poverty so that her useful gift might be exercised. And again, that's that's her romanticizing things. Like it's it is one of her biggest it's one of her biggest flaws. It just keeps coming up, you know, all right. the time. She's very naive. Um and then Alec is like, hey, that sounds great. And there is one very excellent, necessary, and womanly accomplishment that no girl should be without. For it is a help to rich and poor, and the comfort of families depend upon it. And then says a bit more and then he says it should be part of every girl's education drum roll please lauren housekeeping yes you chose true story housekeeping (laughs) (laughs) um he says i would rather see you a good housekeeper than the greatest bell in the city Uh, okay alec okay okay (laughs) now i do um in defense of it, I do, this is what I was saying about like reminding yourself when it was written, like gender roles have evolved, we have moved on, but it is really hard to like look back and read stuff like these, especially when I consider the fact that we're reading this as adults, but I read this as a kid. Yeah. Inappropriate. Well, yeah. It's, it. I don't remember having, no, I don't, I don't think it was inappropriate that my like I wouldn't give this to my niece to read mm-hmm. without having it's like we were saying about having the conversation because right without so, you reading it to her yeah, yeah because it really is going in hard with like a woman's work you know right and I've got an eight-year-old brother and a ten-year-old brother and they are like girls can't do that all the time and I hate right. it and like I've also got a niece who's the same age of them and I am like really fiercely don't want her to ever feel like there is something that she can't do or something that she should do right that a guy doesn't have to because she's a girl she's just expected to do it and so it is hard to read that stuff um knowing all of that and knowing that when I was a kid I just read it and was like yo okay cool Uh, right but what, what's really... Were you keeping it in context as a kid? There was like a lot of things I remember when I was reading Secret Garden as a kid. And I was like, oh, but, you know, things were different. But I do remember that being a re- recurring conversation in my house as well. I think like, I don't, yeah. I mean, I, I, re- I relate to this book a lot. And uh, what's been really interesting reading it is, um, I've said on the show like a bunch of times, I have five brothers. Um I don't talk about this bit a lot. My parents divorced when I was quite young. My older brother's autistic. And so, uh, like, there was a lot of responsibility on baby Hannah. Like, a lot. And I do think it was an unfair amount. Um, And I do think I was the caregiver to my brothers. I still think that that responsibility falls on me. Um, Like, hugely disproportionate amount Mm -hmm. that it does to the guys and like yeah like I do I do resent it and so when I read this and there's a line in chapter 12 that I highlighted where 
I think um, Archie says, I'd go and help, but I don't know how. Yeah. What he means is, I haven't been conditioned to be a caregiver since birth. Like, right. that's what that's what he means. And so, and this, this, yeah, it is hard with classic literature. And I don't, I don't think, because Austen doesn't really take an obvious stance on stuff. I think her books are, there's politics in there, you know, but she yeah. never comes out and is like, this is what things should be like in the same way that absolutely Gaskell, Bronte, uh, Alcott, in the same way that these writers are doing. And so you can kind of read it and like forget that stuff and it's the accessibility thing. And then you read yeah. this and it really challenges modern Hannah, you know, in a way that right. Austen doesn't. Right. And that's it's interesting. True. Totally true. Uh, yeah, it just, it, the definition for progressive here is different than what it is today. Yeah, like, We just have to keep that in mind. Yeah. Like, and also... Yeah, she's being very practical here. Yeah, I mean, this is all I stuff have that to, she like, does have to learn. It is stuff that she does have to learn. Like, when you, like, fall back on it, it's like, what is Rose's lot in life? Like, she's going to be, she's an heiress. Like, she's going to marry. She's like, going to have a large household to run. She needs she's going to have it. a large, yeah. She's going to have money, so she needs to know her finances. She will be running a household, so she has to know how to run a household. Mm-hmm. And, and, like... Yeah, again, like some of it is like looking back and it's like past values and like even even things that we consider old fashioned now. They they thought it was old fashioned in the Victorian times. And it's funny that the words old fashioned kept coming up in this scene because actually it's these themes that are the main um, ideas behind old fashioned girl. And mm-hmm. so old fashioned girl is the story of someone who's coming from poverty, who is living these values and like, is a good housekeeper, can cook, does know how to teach people. It has all of these little tricks that they can rely on, the sorts of things that Rose is imagining she should have in case she becomes poor. And then how that person is interacting with the wealthy family who never think about that stuff. Right. And so it's, do, it's this conversation, but from the other angle. Mm-hmm. So that like that's really interesting. Like This is obviously like an agenda that Alcott has. Like this is This is one of the places she's putting the flag in the ground, you know? Right. And it was also really reminding me of when we were at Gaskell House of um, how every morning uh, the daughters would stay with their mum and like watch her manage the house. Yeah. And like learn. And it's worth remembering that Rose doesn't have a mother. Yeah. She's got a lot of aunts, but Alec is the one that's teaching her. And so these are things that a woman would have been teaching her at that time. Like right or wrong. This is very true she's not getting that education from somewhere. And so when he's saying like, you're going to learn housekeeping, like it's a lesson it's because this is stuff that she wouldn't have been, she wouldn't need a lesson in it because she'd be doing it anyway. Yeah. Right. It's true. It's true. But for him, for him to do that, he, he's not going to be the one to teach her because he's a dude and he's just out gallivanting all the time. So, uh, rant aside, um, he basically is like, Aunt Plenty is incredibly accomplished. She's she's going to teach you everything. It's amazing. And Rose is like, what? She's accomplished? And again, it reminds me of that conversation in Pride and Prejudice, um, a conversation that happens in Old Fashioned Girl where you talk about true accomplishments versus the things that we make women do to make them seem more desirable to men. And actually, I've got a relatively long quote, but I just thought it was lovely. So I'm going to read it, sorry. 
Very busy and very happy were Rose's days now, for in the morning she went about the house with Aunt Plenty, attending to linen closets and storerooms, pickling and preserving, exploring garret and cellar to see that all was right, and learning in the good old-fashioned manner to look well after the ways of the house. And then uh, the afternoons are just spent, this isn't a quote, this is, (laughs) the afternoons are just spent, uh, like, knitting, uh, Aunt Plenty yeah. knits and they just sit and they chat and they laugh and she just spends time with these women that like adore her and she's like learning valuable things. She's learning how to darn socks. She's learning how to make buttonholes. She's learning how to make like practical clothing. And there's a line, the busy needles were embroidering all sorts of bright patterns on the lives of the workers, though they seemed only, they seemed to be only stitching cotton and darning hose. Yeah. I read that like six times. I was sat in a cafe. I just thought it was beautiful. <laughs> there are some great comments uh, on Facebook about this. I think this is the hot topic this week. Mm-hmm. Um, so just, I just want to read a couple. So Carly said, um, and like, thank you for like getting involved and like saying the opinions and like, r- like this is why we do the read-alongs. It's like to rip the text apart and like discuss yeah. it. So it's really like, I just love seeing this. Um, there is nothing wrong with cooking and sewing in themselves, but all of this rhetoric about womanly virtues is just strapping Rose back into the confines that Alec purported to want to get her out of in the beginning. It's like she was given leeway as a sickly child, but now that she's healthier, it's suddenly time for her to prepare for womanhood. I know this is to be expected for the time, but the encouraging way that Alcott started out kind of duped me into thinking that the book would be more progressive. Now I don't know what to think. And you're right. It's it's that confuse uh, that confusion. And I think um, Carly went on to describe it as being like whiplash. Yeah. And that is mm-hmm. how it feels when you're like, yeah, Alka. And then you're like, oh, no, no, <laughs> honey, please don't. Please stop. Um, but then I think that Rachel made a really good point, uh, kind of in response further down in that conversation, saying... I think Alcott wanted the physical and intellectual freedom for women that men have, but believed in a real difference between the sexes. She didn't think women should be confined by corsets and should be allowed to run and such things, but she also thought that women should be a kind of moral force for good and the capacity of living for others is a very important part of her ideal womanhood, of her ideal woman. I don't think she changed her tune. She is consistent in her own time and context, feminism at that time included the temperance movement as a way to protect women from men's violence when drunk times change and i really think that like that comment is like yeah like yeah nailed it yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. yeah so put it way better than i did when i was like wow i find this difficult so thank you um (laughs) rachel and carly yeah absolutely i you know i yeah that's why we talk about these books like, I think that's Eight Cousins was a great choice. It's not, um, you know, it's not a banger like Tenant of Wildfell Hall, right? Which we all knew we were going to love and be mm-hmm. on board with. Um, it's a difficult text. And I think for two reasons, because it's not like as progressive as we want it to be. Um, and two, because it's it's also children's literature. And that is, I think, extra difficult to critique as well. Because so I kind of keep going back to like, complex issues that she's bringing up and then the way that she distills them Mm -hmm. and like because i think those are the points in the book that we really should also like point out and pay attention to yeah absolutely 
Um, um, it's funny you bring yeah. up Tenant of World Fair Hall because I realised that um, the scene where Rose is reading to Mac and the description of her sitting by his side and like putting up with him being grumpy and like taking care of him really made me think of Helen and uh, Arthur. Oh yeah. On his deathbed. And like, it's that the expectation that a woman just has to sit there and deal with your shit. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Next week, we're just going to tackle the last set of chapters. Um, And then also I would like to do a little comparison to the secret garden. So if you guys are like completely done with eight cousins and you want to maybe look at, you know, the secret garden or rewatch the movie or something, go for it. There are a lot of comparisons. There are a lot of things. When we got to that invalid cousin this week, I was like, what? (laughs) No, I will like, I have to admit, surprise, surprise. I haven't, I haven't read the secret garden. Uh, It's true. I've seen the film though, like a bunch of times. Love that film. Um, Yeah. So I will try and speed read it. If not, I'm going to read the spark notes. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, when we were developing this season too, like, and talking about the writers, like, you know, who were going to be, you know, added into the fold. Um, Eight Cousins and Secret Garden was sort of a natural comparison. We didn't want to do two read-alongs, too, for, like, children's literature. Um, Also, The Secret Garden, I feel like, has been read so much. Um, I want to explore some of Burnett's older writing. I'm really excited um, for the titles that we've picked. Yeah, I think, think, you know, that's kind of why we're not doing a Secret Garden read-along. But I do think a lot of you probably know the book quite well. And um, I'm sure you've already kind of seen some com- comparisons as well. And so we will absolutely, we'll make a thread on the Facebook group. And there's going to be a couple other threads in the Facebook group this week because uh, there's just so much going on. So the um, PBS masterpiece Little Women starts today, which, you know, is Sunday, Mother's Day. Um if you're listening to this podcast on Wednesday or, you know, whenever, it might be up streaming on the PBS website. So I would check that out. Um, we're going to be doing a little live tweeting this week, next week, and the following week. And then our last May episode, we will recap our thoughts on um, the series as a whole. So, you know, let us know what you guys think. I know a lot of people have already commented who have seen it in England. I didn't watch it, man. Because I was like, I know you didn't. Solidarity. (laughs) I know you didn't. Other sisterhood. Look at me. Other people have. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard a lot of mixed reviews. So I'm very curious. Like, I'm just like, oh, what's this going to be? And then um, the other thread we'll throw up sometime this week is uh, the BBC radio adaptation of Wuthering Heights starts with Chloe Pire. Other news this week. Is there more news? There's more news. Jeez. Um, just should we gift. thank some people for um for our t-shirts? For we, buying t-shirts? We can. It's not in the notes, so I actually assumed no one had bought any this week, Lauren. We have a few few people who have supported our t-shirt campaign. Okay. So I just want to thank Joanna, Eleanor, Tracy, Christine. Y'all are lovely. Thank um you. I think Today, as in when this episode airs, is technically the last day you can order a T-shirt. Um, but they, you know, reach out to us if you really, if you no, really want one. 
Lauren says this every week and I always make her cut it out. Do it by the deadline, people. Come on. Don't reach out to us. You've had your time. You've had it. Team Bronte t-shirts are up next. (laughs) So now if you want to buy a Team Bronte t-shirt and would like to know when those are going to drop, where should you go on the internet to like maybe ask us a question or, you know, take a look at our announcements? Well, Lauren, thanks for asking. Mm. As, as always, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can find us in your email box. Uh, at reading your email. That like the NSA. When you're reading your email, you could maybe send us one. Uh, and always, always, we're on Facebook. Every minute of every day, I was getting notifications about people posting while we were recording this. I can't wait to read them. Just search Bonnets at Dawn on Facebook. And you will find us. We're there. We will. We are waiting for you. And on that note. All the time. Goodbye, guys. Later. (laughs) 